Psalms 52. The message of tonight, we're going to hopefully go through chapters 52 through 54. And the title of tonight, if you take notes, is God, my deliverer. God, my deliverer. And now more than ever, now more than ever, right, you look at the events that are taking place in our country and you look at the elections and what's taking place even now as we're waiting, right, we're continuing to wait. And the reality is here that on one side of the elections, Regardless of personality and character, even as we spoke about this Sunday, you have a platform that supports um, principles that more closely line up with the Bible. And on the other hand of the platform and the ballot, you have a platform who has completely lost moral footing. There's no moral footing anymore. Uh, there's nothing upon which they stand on that is truth, that is moral, that is not evil. And that's what's on the ballot. But in light of tonight's chapters and in light of what we're going through as a country and what we're voting and as we wait, and in light of what David was going through in these chapters that we're going to go through tonight, he's going to answer for us two questions, in whom to trust and where to stand amid the evil that's around us. This is what David's going to answer for us, in whom we should trust and in where we should stand amid the evil around you. I mean, the evil around us. And if you look around, I mean, it was shared even this Sunday, right? Second Timothy chapter 3, if you look at the description that Paul gives Timothy there as he warns him of perilous times, now more than ever, you don't have to look to the news, go to work. Open up the door of your house, look out, right? You don't even have to look to social media. But what does it say? People will be lovers of pleasure, lovers of themselves, Lovers of money, proud, boastful, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof in their life. We live in a, in a world that's evil, evil around us. Law enforcement, as of yesterday morning, all agencies across the nation are working seven days a week, a minimum of 16 hours a day. You talk about evil in the world. Places of business that have lost their business. Others are boarding up their place so that they're not destroyed. That they have worked their whole life for. Because of evil in the world. Last week in Psalms 51, we saw a psalm of penitence. David pleads for forgiveness. And as we read and as we learned, he said, cleanse me, restore me, and use me. In Psalms 51, he tells the Lord, Lord, cleanse me. After cleansing me, restore me, and having restored me, now use me, right? Now we're going to go into chapter 52. And just to give you a picture, just to give you a context of what's taking place in chapter 52 of Psalms, it takes place when David is running from his life away from King Saul, as he is in many of the book, of, uh, in many of the chapters of Psalms. He's running away from King Saul. Saul was jealous of David and the blessing of God upon his life. And as David is running for his life, he goes to a town called Nob and to seek help from Ahimelech, a high priest. And he asks, he asks him for food and resources because he's running away from Saul. He says, do you have food for me and for my men? Do you have resources? I'm running away from my life. I'm on the go, right? And then Ahimelech, the high priest at Nob, he gives David bread for his men and the sword which David had won against Goliath. They, he had it there. He gives him the sword. He gives him bread, food to eat. He said, well, this is, this is one of David, uh, Saul's mighty men. David, let me take care of him, right? The high priest. And what happens is as he does that, because he didn't know that David was running away from Saul. But as he does that, there's a guy named Dueg, an Edomite that's there. And he sees it. He's a friend of Saul. And what he does is he, he goes and he tells Saul about Ahimelech, the high priest, and how he had helped David by giving him resources and food and sheltering him. And what does Saul do is he orders Duig to kill Ahimelech, the high priest, and the whole line of priesthood, his whole family, and everyone in the town, the mother and the children and the lamb and the sheep, even the animals. This is what he does. And what, what happens in 1 Samuel Chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, we get the context of this story taking place in Psalms 52. 
1 Samuel 22, 18 and 19 says, The king then ordered Duig, you turn and strike down the priest. So Duig, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod, the priest. He also put to the sword Nob, the whole town of priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. So what does he do, Duig, the friend of Saul? He kills a whole line of priests, 85 of them, and women and children in the town. And now David finds himself here, Psalms 52, with that weight upon his shoulders, maybe feeling responsible for that massacre. At Nob, David goes to the Lord now. He goes to the Lord. And we're going to see that now. Verse 1 of Psalms 52. Actually, let's go ahead and pray for this, for tonight's offering and the message. Lord, we come before you this evening, Lord, just grateful again, God. We worship you. We praise you. We ask, Lord, that you would bless those who give, Lord, here tonight as they leave, Lord, and those who give online. We ask that you would stretch it and bless it and use it for your kingdom. And we ask that you would speak to us tonight. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Psalms 52. It says, now, now here's David addressing Duig after he had just done this, right? Verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. In light of the present evil that had just happened, this whole town of Nob, 85 priests, women and children in, in the land, right? The donkeys and cattle and everyone murdered, a huge massacre, right? Because this high priest sheltered and helped David and King Saul found out and ordered this. In light of all that, then David looks over to Duig and says, why do you boast? Why do you boast in evil, almighty man? But almighty man, as we read it in this context and its historical grammar, it's not talking about a man who was mighty. It's almost sarcastic because there wasn't anything mighty about a man who killed a line of priests, about a man who killed women and children, right? They're defenseless priests. They weren't prepared for battle. They're not men of war. But he says, oh, you tough man. Why do you boast in evil? And then he says what? The goodness of God endures continually. Right? Continually. See, in light of the present evil, David goes before the Lord and he says, Almighty man. It's a sarcastic and ironic name for Duig. And, and, and what David is saying here is, You cannot boast your power or accomplishments or greatness of evil in the sight of God. He says, Why do you do that? Don't you know that the goodness of God endures continually? Specifically, the goodness and love of God towards his people. He says, Why do you boast? In front of them. To do again, people's evil's way will not outlast the greatness and the goodness of God. His steadfast love towards his people. It will not. Why do you boast in evil, almighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. It also means that the steadfast love of God towards his people endures continuously. In light of the evil that you're boasting about. You're doing it in light of God's goodness, God's love towards his people. Why do you do that? How dare you do that is what he's saying. Don't you know that God's steadfast love is towards his people? Don't you know that you cannot outlast the goodness and the love of God towards his people? Look what you have done is what he's saying. Psalms 34, 7, we've read it already. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. How dare you do it, boast about your evil. And then he says, your tongue, look how he describes them. Your tongue devices destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. What do we see here? That the judgment, we see the judgment of God against evildoers, right? In those verses, he says, what, your tongue devices destruction, like a sharp razor working deceitfully. What do we see in that story in 2 Samuel? The tongue of Duet caused destruction of priests and a murder of a whole town, just his tongue, by going to King Saul and saying, hey, look, this is what just happened to David, provisions and care by the high priest. And what was ordered? A whole massacre of priest of God 
women and children and cattle and resources of a whole town. You talk about the power of the tongue. Right? What do we read in James chapter 3, verse 6 on Sunday mornings? The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil. Among parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself and is itself set on fire by hell, says James. It is set on fire by hell. And then it says what here? Like a sharp razor working deceitfully. That's how the tongue, the tongue works. Verse 2, you love evil more than good, he tells do it again, evildoers. I mean, look at today as we talk about. What do people love? They love. They don't just do evil over good. They actually love evil more than good. What was once good is now considered bad. What was once bad is now considered good. It's crazy the things that are on the ballot. It's crazy the things that this country is fighting for right now. It says, you love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. See, what happens is that the tongue often works deceitfully for those who love evil more than good. It's cunning. It's crafty. It is itself set on fire by hell, says James. Right? If you're a worker of evil, a worker of iniquity, that's how the tongue is used. Destruction and love for devouring in the heart is displayed with the tongue. What does he say? You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. And then at the end, of, or verse 4 says, you love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. You love all devouring words. We see that destruction and the love for devouring for those who love, uh, or love for devouring is in the heart, is displayed with the tongue. Proverbs 12, verse 6, the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the speech of the upright rescues them. The love of, or the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood. Lie in wait for blood. But it says what? But the speech of the, right, the upright rescue them. And then we see the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say about the mouth and the tongue and about evil? Because here, the speaking of one man's tongue caused the murdering of a whole town. And now David is going before the Lord in prayer, but he's also speaking of this evildoer that caused this. And what did Jesus say? You have heard of old that you shall not murder. But what is he saying in Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22? You have heard of it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Right? But I say to you, but I say now, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hellfire. This is Jesus now. And he's holding somebody committing murder to the same degree of someone who has murder in his heart. This is what Jesus says now. And in this case, in the case of where David is speaking in the context, both happened. There was murder in the tongue and there was murder in the heart and then it was accomplished. Right? And what do we see here? In verse 5, God shall likewise destroy you forever, David says. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. We see that the destruction of, the destruction of God for people who boast about their evil accomplishments. He says, because of all this, because you're deceitful, because you have caused this, because you love evil more than good, verse 5, God likewise shall destroy you forever. In other words, God's justice is going to be satisfied. You cannot get away with evil, is what David is saying. You might think you can, but you're running on a thread of grace. And he says, God's justice is going to be satisfied. He shall take you away and pluck you out. He's going to destroy you. He shall take you away. He's going to pluck you out of your dwelling place. He's going to uproot you from the land of the living. This is a prophetic song about the prevailing goodness of God and the judgment of God against evil. The prevailing goodness of God. What did it say in verse 1? The goodness of God endures continually. That's a promise for me and you tonight. The goodness of God endures continually amid the evil that's taking place, amid the evil that had just happened in Nob. The goodness of God, the steadfast love of God endures continually for your life and mine this evening. 
the prevailing goodness of God and the judgment and his judgment against evil. We read about here. And then what happens now in verse 6? The righteous, the righteous also shall see and fear of the evil getting punished, right? They shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, shall laugh at him saying, he is the man, do it, or the evildoers of today. He is the man, or those are the men who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. What does it say about me and you, men and women of God? It says, the righteous also shall also see God's wrath, God's wrath and justice satisfied against evildoers. And what are they going to do? They shall see and fear in reverence. But then that's followed up with how? They shall laugh at him saying. That's what it says. They shall laugh at him saying. Here's the reaction of the righteous in light of God's judgment against evil. The reaction of the righteous in light of God's judgment against evil. They shall fear in reverence of God's steadfast love towards them and strong power against the enemy. When me and you look at the righteous judgment of God against the evil that's taking place, maybe in our life, the evil that's taking place around us or against us and in our country, what does David say? They shall see and fear. They're going to be in awe at the reverence of God because what does it say? Because the goodness of God endures continually. They're going to be in awe of the goodness of God which endures continually. Not only that, but also of the power of God in judgment and the strong power of God against the enemy. They will be in awe because of it. And they will laugh, it says. And shall laugh at him saying. They're going to laugh in joy of the victory of God over evil. One day. One day we will, right? Over the evil that's taking place and that's reigning. And, we, and God still gives us victories today in our lives against evil. And then what happens in verse 7? He is the man who did not make God his strength, but he trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. See, God will punish those who are boastful in their own ability, in their own abundance, in their own power. God will punish them, is what David is saying. Right? The man who did not make God his strength. Those who made their riches their strength and not God their strength. God will have the last word because judgment belongs to him, David is saying. Judgment belongs to him. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. The Lord knows how to keep or how to rescue godly people from their trials even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. And then we see now, what does it say in verse 8? But I am. But. He says, but in contrast to these people who do evil, who do wicked, who's God's, who God's wrath and, and justice is going to be satisfied against, in contrast to them, who the goodness of God endures and prevails against them continually, in contrast to them, look what David says, but I am, but I am. So these people, they trust in the abundance of the riches. They don't put their, their trust in God who is their strength, but me? He says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. Wow. Look what David says. In contrast to those who put their trust in themselves, we are to put our trust in the mercy of God. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever, David says. But well, you know what's interesting here at the beginning of verse 8? If you want to underline and circle that, highlight, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Can you picture that? A green olive tree. There's two pictures there. 
The olive tree is green or fruitful because of where it's planted. The blessing of God toward David was because of whom his trust was in and where his feet were planted. He said, I am like an olive tree, a green olive tree, meaning fruitful and blessed, that's planted in the house of God. Look at that picture that it gives us. See, the, the, the olive tree is green and fruitful because of where it was planted. And David says, I am that way. The blessing of God toward David was because of whom his trust was in. And what does he say? I trust in the mercy of God forever. But it also, the blessing upon his life was also because of where his feet were planted. He says, I am like this olive green tree planted in the house of God. Wow. In light of what's taking place in our country. Where is your trust tonight? And whom is it in? And where are you planted? Well, my trust is in this candidate, or my trust is in this party, or in these propositions, or in the Senate, or in the Congress, or in this career. Whom is your trust in this evening, and where are your feet planted? I love how David pictures that for us. I am like a green olive tree. Not only am I a tree, I'm blooming, I'm fruitful, I'm blessed because I am planted in the house of God. Because I've chosen to trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. And then he says what in verse 9? I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints I will wait on your name for it is good. Instead of taking matters into his own hands, David, David chose to wait on God. What does he say there at the end of verse 9? I will wait on your name for it is good. What is here? What does David teach us here? Because we often want to take matters into our own hands. We want to respond by instinct against evil. We want destruction in our own hands when we, when we see evil. I know I do. I look at the evil around and I want to take it upon my hands. I want to take care of destruction on my own, because of the evil that I see. But what do we learn from David? He says, I will praise your name also forever, and in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. I will wait on your name, for it is good. Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And, and, and what we know about David and his life, as you know already, David was a military warrior with skill and ability. And he could have brought revenge on his own against Duig. After killing the 85 priests and, and this line of priesthood and the men, and, and I'm sorry, the women and children and the cattle, he could have very well with his men brought vengeance on his own by himself. But he says, I trust in the mercy of God. I am like a green tree planted in the house of God, and therefore I'm green, therefore I'm fruitful, therefore I'm blessed. And I choose to trust in the mercy of God forever, and because I have put my trust in the mercy of God, I will also praise his name forever, David says. But he says, where will he do it? In the presence of your saints. I will wait on your name, for it is good. Because David's trust was in God forever, he was confident that he could also praise God forever. He could confidently say, you have done it, he says there, because you have done it. God's continual enduring goodness, as we read in verse 1, and righteous judgment toward evil should give us confidence to say, Lord, you have done it. You have overcome evil. You have taken vengeance on our behalf. I don't have to take it on my own. And that's what David is saying here. Because the goodness of God endures continually. Because I trust in your mercy. Because I have chosen to praise you forever. Because I am like a tree planted in the house of God. Then I can confidently say, Lord, you have done it. You have done it. But what does he say here? Not only is he going to be like a tree there. He says, but you have done it. In the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. David chose to wait in the presence of the saints. And then he says, I will wait in the presence of your saints. I will wait on your name. David chooses to wait in the presence of the saints in the name of God. 
amid the evil around him. David chose to be planted in the house of God and in the presence of the saints. This brings the question, where are me and you choosing to be planted and to stand today? He says, not only am I like a tree planted in the house of God, but I am also in the presence of your saints at church, in the house of God. And I will wait on your name, for it is good, David says. In light of evil and the destruction around us, and among us, we are to choose. This is what David is teaching us. And we'll read in, in verse 8 and verse 9, me and you, in light of the evil going around and all around us, and the destruction, we are to choose as believers to place our trust in the mercy of God while planted in the house of God and to wait upon the vengeance of God. Me and you as believers, like David, we are to place our trust in the mercy of God while planted in the house of God to wait upon the vengeance of God. We'll look at everything that's taking place, right? And soon we'll know even some more. And we look, where should, where should I run? Where do I put my trust? Where should I stand? What should I do? Place your trust in the mercy of God while planted in the house of God, while waiting upon the vengeance of God or the deliverance of God for your life. Romans 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is David in self-control. He says, I'm just going to be planted in the house of God. I'm going to put my trust in the mercy of God. I'm going to be planted in the house of God. And I'm going to wait upon the vengeance of God on behalf of my life. He says, I'm going to overcome evil with good by waiting upon the Lord. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. Now we go to Psalms 53. And Psalms 53 is intended to give, David writes it to, intended to give Israel faith and courage amid the threat of invasion. And it's also a psalm where David writes about that God is faithful to deliver his people from godless fools. That's what David calls them, godless fools. Look at verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable abominable." iniquity there is none who does good we see that david makes a conclusion upon the people who deny the existence of god do you know somebody who denies the existence of god david has david has come up with the conclusion for them and how do we know those people today they're called what atheist right and he says the fool has said in his heart there is no god david calls them fools they are fools because they deny the plain evidence is what David is saying. Psalms 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. David says there's no way. There's no way. You can look at creation. You can look at the mountains separated from the waters. You can look at the animals of water. And how if they were on land they wouldn't survive and vice versa. There's no way you can look at the human body and creation and everything else and say there is no God. Absolutely no way, David says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And, and if you notice in that verse that David thought it was important to mention not only what the fool says, but where he says it. Did you notice that? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. See, their denial, the fool's denial, is not only intellectual, meaning that they don't have enough proof and evidence to believe. It's not just intellectual. David says it's a heart problem. The fool has said in their heart there is no God. They deny him in their heart. They not only deny him for proof or evidence or reasons, but at their core, in their heart, they wish he did not exist. God. Why? Because they don't have, then they don't have to submit to him. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. In his heart, not in his mind, not in his head. There's evidence, there's proof. And most cases, and just talking to people in everyday life, after asking, asking questions and finding out when people say, I don't believe in God, I come to find out is you don't want to believe in God because once you acknowledge that he does exist, you have to submit to him. And because of that, because they deny God in their life, they are corrupt, David says, right? They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. 
because they deny God in their life, they are corrupt and have done hateful wickedness. And then David concludes in that verse, that man alone in his fallen nature cannot and does not do good. Man alone in his own fallen nature cannot and does no good. Man who says that there is no God, who denies the existence of God. And then look what happens in verse 2. God looks down upon heaven, or from heaven, upon the children of men to see if there's any who understand, who see God. Every one of them has turned aside. Every one of them. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. What does David say? That the godless fool may not look up to God, but God does look down upon man. God will look down upon man. And often, people think that as long as I deny the existence of God and, and, and stay away from church and stay away from Scripture, God's going to leave me alone. But what does it say in verse 2? God looks down from heaven upon the children of men. God looks down to see if there's any who understand his existence and therefore seek him for righteousness, it says in verse 2. Upon the children of men to see if there's any who understand and therefore who seek God. Who understand and therefore seek God. What does David say in the earlier Psalms? Oh, taste and see. Taste and see because one have, once I have tasted, once I have discovered by personal experience, once I have seen on my own, once I understand, then I'm going to seek him. He says, to see if there's any who understand and who seek God, God looks down from heaven. And then it says, everyone, as God looks down, every one of them has turned aside, every single one. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Humanity in their fallen nature has turned aside, away from God, and therefore has become corrupt. In their own human nature, they have turned aside. And then, what does David uh, say here? David concludes that even those of us, of me and you, who believe in God, after God's looking down upon man, God will not find no one who does good. No, not one. You know what David is teaching us? A little bit of theology. Christian or biblical theology. That none of us are good. He's speaking about the depravity of man. And, and, and Paul in Romans, he quotes, he quotes uh, David here. Roman, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And look how Paul quotes, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. God looks down from heaven and he looks both now at the godless fool who denies the existence of God. And then he looks down at me and you and he says there's no one in their own human fallen nature who is good. No, not one. They have all turned aside. And because they have turned aside away from God, they have become corrupt. And there's no one, no, not one who is good. Do you guys remember the ruler who goes up to Jesus and he calls him good teacher? And Jesus looks at him and says, why do you call me good? There is no one who is good but the Father in heaven. Right? Jesus looks at him and says, there's no one who is good. But in saying that, he claims, because you are calling me good, I am God. And what happens in verse 4, have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great fear where no fear was, for God has scattered the bones of him who enc encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. From the fallenness of man, David goes back to speak on the fools who deny him. First he says, you know what, God looks down upon man and he sees that no one, no, not no one is good. But now he's going to go back to the godless fool who denies him. And he says about this godless fool, he says, have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat of my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? And then verse 5, 
there they are in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. What is David saying in these verses here? There is judgment to the workers of iniquity, to those who do not call upon God. God's justice will be satisfied. And then what does he say there in verse 4? He says, have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? He wondered and he asked if they have no knowledge. These godless fools who deny the existence of God. He says, have they have no knowledge? Almost as if David is saying, are they so dumb to deny the one who's, who the heavens declare his glory? Are they so foolish to deny of the separation of the water and the mountains and the way we have oxygen and the stars in the sky and the distance of the sun in order for us to not get burned and earth to not get melted? Do they not understand? Are they so foolish? Do they have no knowledge, David says? And then in verse 5, they are in great fear, these wicked people. Where no fear was, for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. See, the fool's denial and despising of God will lead to the denial and despising of God to the fool. What did Jesus say? If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. But if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And, 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 and look what he's saying. The fool's denial and the despising of God is going to lead to the denial and despising of God to the fool. In verse 5, the judgment is to those who say there is no God, who deny his existence. What's the judgment here? It says that they are in great fear where no fear was. Isn't that what happens in a life outside of the will of God? You're running always from fear, always from evil, always scared. He's, and, and, and look what it says, where no fear was. Fear doesn't even exist. But because you're not in the will of God, there's fear. There's trembling. There's running. You're always you know, looking behind your back, right? They will run in fear where there is no terror and be scattered and be put to shame. It says, you have put them to shame because God has despised them because they first denied and despised God. And now they're running and fearful. He says, where there is no fear, where there is no terror, they're just running like a chicken without their head. And then he says what here? Verse 6. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. In anticipation of God's deliverance, David calls for Israel to rejoice. In light of this chapter where David is writing about a Israel who's in captivity and is asking for God to deliver them, what happens is that in anticipation of God's deliverance, David calls for Israel to rejoice. Oh, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad, David says. See, David knew that God was a refuge for his people and that the workers of iniquity would not e eventually prevail against the people of God. What did it say in the last chapter, verse 1? The goodness of God endures continually. The steadfast love of God towards his people, towards you and I, endures continually. And the workers of iniquity will not prevail against the goodness of God, against the power of God, against evil. The goodness and steadfast love of God for his people in light of evil doers. He says rejoice. And then look at now Psalms 54. Again, in all three, David is in a position where evil is around him. He's under pressure and he needs to know this. In whom should I put my trust? Where should I stand? Right? We saw that in the last two chapters. Here in chapter 54, David is betrayed by these people who are known as the Ziphites as he hides in the desert at a town called Ziph. And the Ziphites, they told, that David, they told Saul that David was hiding in the desert at their land. And what do we know about Ziph is that it was a land given to Judah, which was David's tribe. So they, in other words, they were like an extension of David's family. And now they have betrayed him. And David writes his psalm 
of an expression and plea of deliverance from his enemies. Very similar to the last two. What does he say in verse 1? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, and give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Verse 1, what does it say? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. In his distress and fear for his life, David relied on the name and the strength of God. What does he say? By your name, by your strength. He relied on the name and the strength of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul, in speaking to the Ephesians, speaks to them and putting the full armor of God and says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. David says here, save me by your name, not by my resources, not by my strength. He was a strong man of war. He says, but by your name and vindicate me by your strength. When it says in His name, it speaks of the character and the nature of God. When it says his strength, it speaks about the power of God. David knew he could call upon the strength of God because of what he knew about the name of God. Did you catch that? See, David says, save me by your name and vindicate me by your strength. David knew that he could call upon the strength of God because of what he knew about the name of God. What do we know about the name of God? El Shaddai, Almighty God, Most Powerful. El Elyon, the Most High God. El Moshah, God of Salvation, or God who saves. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, or the Lord is my victory. David, in knowing the name of God, had the boldness and the confidence to say, now I can call upon the strength of God, the Lord my banner, the Lord my deliverer, the Most High God, the God of my salvation, Almighty God, Most Powerful. See, David knew he could call upon the strength of God because, what he, because of what he knew about the name of God. He says, save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. Verse 2, hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. What does he say? O God. He's crying out to him for deliverance, for help. He asked God to hear his prayer. O God, a plea to hear his words of his mouth for deliverance. And he says, for the strangers, these people that have turned me in, have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. See, the oppressors coming against David was also a statement of them coming against God. And he says, they have not set God before them. David says, hear my words, hear my cry, save me. By your name, because of what I know about your name, save me by your strength, O oh God. And then what happens? Verse 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. David, David declares a victorious and comforting confirmation. And here's a victorious and comforting confirmation for you and I, the church, tonight. He takes refuge and confidence in another name of God. Which one? He says, Behold, God is my helper. Jehovah Ezra, the Lord my helper. He takes confidence in that. And he says, Because God is my helper, the Lord is also with those who uphold my life. And he will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth, he says. See, not only will God help the people of God, but he will also be among those who sustain the people of God. And that's why, like in this Sunday's teaching, we, the nation of the United States, for all of our history and up until today, and we continue to, and us as Christians should vote, for the backing up of the nation of Israel. He says, because God is my helper and the Lord is with, is with those who uphold my life. Genesis 12, verse 3, God is speaking to Abraham 
about the nation and the descendants that he would give him. He says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. This is a promise for the nation and the people of Israel, but also for those of us who put our trust in his mercy on our planet in his house. That he's also our helper. And, and, and that also that the Lord is those who uphold or who sustain my life, David says, or our life. And he will repay my enemies for their evil. He will, not me. I don't have to take matters into my hands. He will do it. And then he says, what? Well, cut them off, he's praying, in your truth. David prays before God that his enemies are killed or cut off in light of God's truth. What is God's truth? The truth of the reality here is that Saul and his men were after David to destroy him, but God had promised to save him. So in light of that truth that God had promised to save him, in light of the truth of God's very own word, he says, cut them off so that your truth can prevail. Cut them off in your truth. You said you were going to save me. And then verse 6, I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. See, David offers a free will sacrifice. There's different sacrifices in the Old Testament, right? Different sacrifices for different things. David offers a free will sacrifice, which speaks of it wasn't required of him. He says, I'm going to come before you in the altar, and, and, and not because you have ordained it or commanded it, but I'm going to offer a free will sacrifice. I'm going to offer you worship. But it's a sacrifice given of his own will. He first prays before God and then offers worship before God amid this evil against him. And then he says what? I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me, verse 7, out of all my trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. In anticipation of God's deliverance, David praises God amid, amid the pressure, amid the trial. He says, what? I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. He has delivered me out of all my trouble. He has delivered me, meaning in the past. In anticipation of God's rescuing, he praises God while the problem remains and before his prayer is answered. Look at that example for us in our life. Amid the trial, amid the pressure, amid the evil, amid the destruction around us and maybe against us. What does David do? And what should we do? He praises God while the problem remained. And before his prayer is even answered. He says, I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has. He haven't delivered me yet, but in the past you've done it. He has delivered me out of all my trouble. He took his problem over to God and he was confident that God would deliver him. He has delivered me out of all my trouble. My eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. David had seen the faithfulness of God in the past and was therefore able to anchor his hope in God for the future. Think about the evil that exists today all around us. And maybe you have trials and evil against you in your own life this evening. What does David say? He has seen the faithfulness of God in the past. He has delivered me out of all my trouble. And therefore I'm going to praise him. What was David doing? Because he had seen the faithfulness of God in his life in the past, he was therefore able to anchor his hope in God for the future. Because I've seen you in the past, because you have been faithful, because you've never failed, because you've always given me the victory, because the steadfast love, because the goodness of God endures continually, because it prevails against evil, because it prevails against the enemy, because it's always, it always outlasts evildoers and workers of iniquity. Because of that, I'm going to praise you in the storm. I'm going to praise you amid the trial and before my prayer is answered, David says. He has. He says, he has delivered me. The Lord had delivered him from battles, from Goliath, from the Philistines. And David was confident in his eyes, as it says there, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. He was confident in his eyes that he would see the victory again. Again. And tonight, church, as we look at what's going on, as we learn from David, 
right? In whom should we trust and where should we stand? David said, I'm going to stand in the house of God. I'm going to stand in the presence of the saints and in your mercy I put my trust forever, he says. Look at the justice of God in the past, the love of God towards you in the present, and you should be comforted for your life in the future. That's what we learn here, right? Look at the justice of God in the past in your life, the faithfulness of God in the past, and the love of God towards you in the present. The goodness of God endures continually. And that should be a comfort to you for the future until he comes or takes us home. But I'll remind you with these three points we went over earlier. Place your trust in the mercy of God. Be planted in the house of God. And wait upon the vengeance or the deliverance of God tonight. Like David, do not take upon matters into your own hands and as evil is around us. In whom should we trust? Put your, put your trust in the mercy of God. Be planted in the house of God and wait upon the vengeance or the deliverance of God. Let's go ahead and pray. We worship the Lord with one last song. Church, I want to encourage you just to continue praying. Pray for this country. Pray for our existing president and whoever will be our new one. And we know that even in light of or despite of the elections, we know who is king. And we know in whom we can put our trust. We know where we can stand in the house of God and in whom we can wait upon for deliverance. Lord, we come before you this evening, God, to worship you, to praise you, God. We ask, Lord, that your word would have taken root in our hearts this evening, Jesus. Lord, that tonight, God, we, put, we choose to put our trust in the mercy of God, and Lord, we need it. Your word says that your mercy is new toward us every morning. Lord, we choose to place our feet in the house of God in the presence of the saints. And we choose to wait upon you, God, for deliverance and for vengeance, Lord. Deliver your people, God. We come before you, Lord. We pray for everything that's taking place in our country, God. Protect us physically, spiritually, Lord, emotionally. Make us men and women of your word, God. They cry out to you like David, oh God, my helper, my deliverer. We worship you, Jesus. And we thank you, God, and we ask this all in your name. Amen.